Hey everyone, it's Zoe Blasky. Welcome to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. Thank you for being here. I really am grateful that you've pressed that little play button and you're here with me right now. I have an incredible episode for you today. As you might know, I am fascinated, passionate, and really curious about generational work, specifically how pain gets passed down the generations, because I think it's so important. And while it can be a hard topic for sure. I think it's ultimately really freeing to see ourselves as part of a way bigger picture of our lineage. And it's just not talked about enough with parents and mothers. So I've done some amazing episodes on this topic. Two that really stand out are with Gabor Mate and Julia Samuel. So definitely go back and listen to those if you haven't already. Today's episode dives even deeper into this topic. I discovered today's guest, psychoanalyst Galit Atlas, when she was on Glennon Doyle's podcast, which is called We Can Do Hard Things. And I know lots of you listen to that as well as Motherkind because tons of our community sent me that episode too, saying we have to get Galit on Motherkind. So here she is. Galit's new book is called Emotional Inheritance, which is the name that she gives to the trauma passed down to us from previous generations. And that is what this conversation is about. So in this episode, you're going to learn how we are each haunted by our family secrets and trauma. And here's the key, whether we know them or not, and how to break that cycle for future generations. So exciting and so important. Gali also shares the incredible new research on generational trauma, which proves how it's passed down the generations genetically. We also talk about our unconscious need to heal what our parents couldn't and how our bodies carry what our mind won't remember and how we can release our bodies from that burden. It's absolutely fascinating. I hope you love it. Here it is. Gilly, welcome to the podcast. I was just sharing with you, I heard you on Glennon Doyle's and I thought you were incredible and I was just absolutely fascinated. So I immediately read the book and thought I have to speak to you. So I'm, I'm really, really excited for this conversation. So thank you for making the time. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here today. So I've been thinking about how to introduce this concept of emotional inheritance to my audience because it's such a big concept really, isn't it? And then I read these words. I think they all found them on your website, but I thought I'd read them out as a place to start because I thought it was a brilliant overview of this concept. The words are the people we love and those who raised us live inside us. We experience their emotional pain. We dream their memories. And these things shape our lives in ways we don't always recognize. Emotional inheritance is about family secrets that keep us from living our full potential, create gaps between what we want for ourselves and what we're able to have, and haunt us like ghosts. I mean, there's so much in there, isn't it? But I guess the rest of this conversation is going to be unpacking that concept. And the word that just really jumped out to me when I read that was this idea of 
what we want to have and what we feel stuck in, like we can't have it. Because I guess all of us want to feel more joy and to feel more present and to feel more self-love and self-acceptance. You would say that if you're perpetually stuck not having those things, maybe we need to look up the generations. Can you begin to slowly and gently, because it's a big idea, unpack that for us? Thank you. I think that that's really right. I think the main idea is, in general, and it's not only about generational trauma, is that anything we don't know can control our lives and create those gaps that you were talking about. The gap is really about that difference between what we consciously want for ourselves, the joy, or, you know, people come to therapy and they said, I want to have a relationship or I want to have a career. And somehow that doesn't happen. And when that happens, that gap, we have to look, you said up, and I would add up and down, right? Both on the surface, under the surface, into the previous generations and our unconscious, and really understand what is it that stops us from living to our full potential. And what we usually find is that those are forces that we were not aware of. Some of them are related to the struggle of the previous generations. I totally get this in myself because consciously, I want this really big platform. I consciously really want that. It would be amazing to reach more women and more mothers in the world. But then when I get some of these opportunities that would help me have that, my, I would say it's a somatic reaction. My physical reaction is to shut down and I start to think about everything that could go wrong and I'm going to be humiliated and I'm going to make a mistake. And who am I to want that anyway? Is that what you're talking about when we talk about what we consciously want and then what we notice in our unconscious? Thank you for sharing that. I think this is exactly what I'm talking about because, for example, and I identify with what you're saying, right? We all want more, but there is a part of it that is afraid of more. And I know there are a lot of mothers listening to us and I'm thinking about my own mother, for example, as I share in the book some personal feelings and experiences. And my mother, and that's something I I actually didn't talk about, is somebody who used to be very frightened of being exposed. She was very much a home person and always was a little anxious about being out there. And I think my mother lives inside me. So I'm here, right? And I'm out there and my book is out there and translated to many languages and I'm giving a lot of talks, right? But my mother still lives inside me. And I had to unpack that piece of me like yours that wants more, but also has her mother whispering in her ear, be careful, it can be dangerous. How do you begin to unpack that? I think Probably the first step is to know who our parents are and where they came from. And it sounds simple, but part of what I'm talking about in the book is really all of those, again, mostly unconscious forces and dynamics that does not allow us to do it. And the feedback that I get from people who read the book is to say, oh, I never put these things together. There are things I actually knew about my family. But I actually never connected it. So I think the the second step is really making links. And I think that the links usually come right after we think 
consciously about our history and our parents' history and where they came from. You know, it's interesting when I teach that to clinicians even, I usually open by saying, did anybody here have family trauma? And most of the time, at least half of the people say, no, nah, we didn't have trauma in our history. And then as we go on, we really find, right, people suddenly make the links and suddenly they're like, oh, actually, we have war trauma from World War Two, or even before we had a illegal abortion. My mother lost her mother when she was a girl. All of these traumas that are past trauma and our family traumas, most of them are dissociated or repressed. So we have to bring those, what I call in the book, ghosts, back to life. And the first step is really as simple as what happened in my family? What happened before I was born? In a way, it's so hopeful because, you know, we can do this work and explore and, and understand ourselves better. In the book, you say the moment it's conscious, that's when we can have a choice about doing something about it. But it's also really painful and heavy going. These things, I guess, were suppressed and dissociated for a reason, because the generations above us thought that the best way to protect the next generation was to not talk about it. So it's almost like I'm kicking and screaming, going, why do we have to go back and unpack these painful memories? How do we know when we're ready to do that? Because I guess a lot of us, you know, me included, life as a mum is full on. You know, there's a lot being reawakened at any given point from my own girls. There's just a lot going on day to day. How do we know when it's safe, I guess, in our bodies to start to face some of those things, like you say, the ghosts, the secrets, the things unsaid. Is there a right time to do this? You know, thank you for asking this, because I think you're starting really with our fear to touch, you know, to touch the unspeakable, our fear of pain. And that makes sense, right? We are all afraid of going towards pain and unpacking it as there is a reason why secrets are kept, especially secrets about trauma. Parents want to protect their children, and children also want to protect their parents. They don't want their parents to relive their traumas. And I think telling about your trauma is, to some degree, reliving it. And so there is a collusion between the generations of like, you know, let's just go around it. And of course, we're talking about the prices of that. But to your question, I actually do think there is a time to do it. And the time is usually when we already processed it. I think that is the one thing that is the most important one because the binary, right, between keeping a secret and throwing up a secret on somebody is very extreme. And I think sometimes when we don't want to keep a secret, we just dump it on the other person. Like, you know, this and this has happened to me and it's not fully processed and we never thought about it and we never talked about it and understood what it did to us, what the meaning of that is. Right. So I think the first step is really process, process, process our own secrets or our own family trauma, make the links between the past and the present, and only then introduce it to the future generation, right? Only then. So we don't do the psychological work through them. That makes sense because that's dumping, isn't it? That's different than sharing something that's been processed. 
it, it's just easier sometimes. I think that's the instinct. It's like you keep it or you drop it, right? Or you dump it. Those are the two extremes. And you talked about parents wanting to protect and previous generations want to protect, which is why we keep these secrets, these ghosts that you say, which then come to you know manifest in our unconscious and block us effectively. Why is that not actually protecting? Why is it better to bring things out into the light? Can you explain that in more detail? Yeah. You know, it's interesting in the book, I quote the Holocaust survivors, Maria Torok and uh, Nicholas Abraham, who said, what haunts us are not the dead, but the gaps left within us by the secrets of others. And I have a whole section in the book that is called The Secrets of Others. And the truth is that, again, it is about how the unspeakable and the unsaid lives inside us anyway. I bring a lot of these stories in the book. You know, the the book is not a pure self-help book. There are a lot of narratives and stories from therapy that demonstrates how one feels something in their body and it appears in dreams and it appears in fantasies or they struggle with something and they can't really understand why. And so I think one of the things we see is that it liberates us to make those links and to say, oh, you know, I had, and I'm, I'm going to give you an example from one of the chapters here of Noah's chapter. It's a short story that I originally wrote for the New York Times and was published in 2015. And that was the first story I wrote for the book that ended up being one of the chapters. And Noah was somebody who came to therapy because he had a fantasy that he had a dead brother, a twin brother who died in birth. And he tried to communicate that with his parents and he talked to them about it. But what happened was that they, of course, denied it. That chapter is a good example to how the unspeakable lived in Noah's mind. And the minute he found out the truth, and I'm going to give you a spoiler, that at the end we find out that he had a brother actually who died. It was not his twin brother, but died before he was born. And that made him feel that he is actually not crazy, right? I'm, I'm using quotation mark when I say crazy, but that's the blame, right? That's the, what we call today the gaslighting of like, why, why, why are you talking about these things? And you know, it's interesting because when Noah and I, of course, with his permission and him reading this chapter, wrote this chapter, both of us thought, you know, this is a very unusual story of some secret that was kept and look how the secret is alive in Noah's mind. And after I published it, an hour after it was published, I started getting so many emails from people who had similar experiences. And then I I realized, to my surprise, I have to say, that it's not so unusual, especially, by the way, when it comes to dead siblings, that there, there is something very, very, very powerful and haunting about a dead sibling or a sibling who suffers you know, and there is a whole section in the book on that topic. But I guess to summarize it, I feel like what we're dealing with here really is how the unsaid and the unspeakable lives inside our mind anyway. So we think we're protecting by not telling, but the truth is, is that that sits in our subconscious anyway, and it's driving us anyway. So actually the kindest thing 
is to speak the processed truth, is to speak. The kindest thing is to process our own history and to not keep it as a secret, right? And to have like, you know, this is something painful and this is something that happened, right? This is our, our legacy, right? And I think that the way it helps the next generation is that it allows them to have words for their experiences as opposed to hold ghosts. What about age appropriateness? Because I'm thinking about some things like abortion, even like really extreme things, really extreme trauma like murder that will happen in you know many, many families, unfortunately. How do we get that right as parents and as mothers? How do we know when the time is right to share with our children? Or do we share not the specifics, but maybe tell us how we do that? That's a great question because I think that often what we do is that we follow the kids. They give us the signal, right? And again, that's the difference between I have an idea that I need to share with my children that I had an abortion, right? And so they're five and I'm like, you know what? I had an abortion. So no, (laughs) that's not how we do it, right? And I think we all struggle with that delicate, what's right, what's wrong, how to do it. My biggest advice is follow the kids. Kids ask questions, right? There is a picture on the piano, right? That was used to be my history, right, with my dead uncle. And at some point, the kids are ready to ask, who is that person? And you say, oh, I used to have a brother and he died. If they're not ready, they're not going to ask you how he died. And years later, right, two years later, they're going to come and say, that picture on the piano, he died. What did he die from? And you're going to tell them what he, right? And so we follow them. They give us a signal when something we say is too much, right? And of course, age appropriate. Of course, I'm not going to introduce abortion is about sexuality and sex. I'm not going to introduce that before kids actually understand something about, you know, about babies and about, right? And we say, yeah, with my own children, you know, I had a miscarriage. And at some point when my kids asked, did you ever want to have more kids? And I say, yeah, I mean, in fact, I was pregnant and I lost the pregnancy. The following their directions was that they didn't right away ask me any questions about it. You know, the kids say like, all right, bye, we're out of here, you know, and they go do their own thing. And then at some point they come back because they remember that and they're ready. And they say, so how was it? When was it? And so we don't have to tell kids everything at the same time. We can just, you know, send, like it's like sending a, a message in a bottle, you know, we send some, you say something that says there is something here and they come back to us to ask questions. I, you know, in the book, you see that a lot of the stories are about people going back to their parents to ask questions. It's like, oh, I remember, I knew that that happened. What actually happened? So I think that the frame is not a frame that says, hey, be careful, do not keep anything from your children, you know. It is much more a frame of saying, let's process and be ready to communicate about our history. Because it's our shared history, right? Our history and our parents' history is also our children's history. You mentioned about going back to our parents. And in that example of Noah, you know, his parents, as you said, that would be gaslighting. Like, no, you're crazy. That never happened or a complete stonewalling, or Glennon calls it parental fragility, where we go back to our parents and there's just like a, how, you know, I did the best I could. 
how dare you, you know, all that sort of, how do we navigate that? Do we always have to go back to our parents for the answers? Are there things that we can work on within ourselves? You know, I don't think we always have to go to our parents or grandparents. Sometimes this information is, you know, we get information and sometimes we just process it without it. And I think you're right. There is parental fragility. There is parental defensiveness. We ourselves could be defensive as parents because don't forget that uh, we explore our ancestors' secrets but we create our own secrets. So, you know, so if our kids come to us and say, hey, I know somebody, I have a patient that used to be married before and she explores her own history, but actually her children do not even know that she was married before. And that's a secret. And we talk about that, right? What does it mean and why? And what's the shame around that? And if her children came to her and say, of course, it depends on how they say it also, but uh, you were married before. I think that at this point, she would be very ashamed of that. So I think we have to deal with our own shame and also understand that our parents might feel a lot of shame, not only about their secrets, but also about their traumas, you know, and parents are, as we know, we're talking to parents and we are parents, humans with limitations also. and so. Yeah, it's not always possible to talk about it because we also do not want to traumatize our parents. Yeah, exactly. We can't rip off that plaster if someone's not ready. That causes way more pain and hurt, I think, doesn't it? If someone's listening and they're thinking, right, I think I'm understanding this, that it's the unsaid things that travel down our generations that often create these blocks in ourselves. And we have to bring light to those in order to bring more of those secrets into our conscious mind so that we can then be, have, and do all the things that we we want to do. Is that a fair enough summary so far? Yeah. Okay, good. So if someone's sort of thinking, right, I guess all of that. <laughs> and if someone's thinking, okay, let's take, well, you know, I talked about the example of wanting to be bolder and, and brighter in the world and thinking, okay, how did the people around me when I was growing up, how did they feel about being seen in the world? So taking these blocks that we have and putting it into a generational context. My question is, do we need therapeutic support to do that? Is it safe, quote unquote, therapeutically to, you know, grab our journal and start doing that work, you know, grab your book and start thinking about it? How do we know when we need more support? You know, I think that it is safe, I know a lot of people that do it, especially, right, as there are a few books now and mine, Emotional Inheritance included, people read it and they start doing it automatically. They don't necessarily say, I need another person to do that. I do think that we have to trust our minds, that we have wonderful defense mechanisms that will protect us from what we cannot handle. The issue, I think, of getting help is that when we get to a place where there is a conflict because we do want to know and we know that there is something else we need to know and we know that we cannot handle it. That's the point when we need help, right? That's the point when we need another person to hold our hand, to help us understand what we're going through. And when we encounter pain, we seek help, you know? So I think it doesn't mean that we have to start this process with help. And some people do some of that work on their own. And I think at some point we all get to places, I think, that 
we stop and say, should I move deeper or that's enough for me, <laughs> right? And in that point, I think usually people seek help if they want to move a little deeper, dive a little deeper or look into something that they're afraid to look. I know for me, that comes up physically. It's almost like a feeling of stop in my body. And I was just fascinated to read about how a lot of these ghosts and these secrets, they don't sit in our conscious mind. And we've been talking about, they sit in our bodies. I mean, it's mind blowing, isn't it? So how does that happen? Like how on earth does, you know, a secret or trauma that my parents have end up sitting in my body? that I'm feeling it, but I'm not knowing what the memory is. You know, the mind and the body are connected, right? And in the book, I say, when the mind remembers, the body is allowed to forget. Because there is an agreement between the mind and the body. We're, they work together as a system, right? And a lot of the things that are too painful for us to remember is deposited in the body. The body remembers it for us. You see, to some degree, that agreement is an agreement like between uh, the agreements we have between couples or between, right, that you're going to do that for me because it's too hard for me because I cannot. And I like to think about it that way as a collaboration between the body and the mind that has consequences because what the mind cannot remember the body has to carry, right? It's like that quote of the body keeps the score of uh, Van der Kork. It does keep the score. It does remember for us. And we know that when we allow the mind to remember, when we do that work, and I mean, any clinician that listens to that knows that from our practice, right? The energy moves back to where it belongs. The body doesn't need to carry it anymore for us. We release the body from that literal burden. It's so fascinating, isn't it? So, you know, people with chronic migraines, chronic shoulder ache, perhaps these are all well, that your book and your work would suggest, same as that amazing body keeps the score, that those are unprocessed memories, unprocessed traumas, unprocessed pain that are sitting in our bodies. And dissociated feelings like anger, you know, there's a whole research about anger and back pain how anger sits in our backs. That's where we hold it. And so I do think that it's dissociated feelings as well and uh, things that we're not symbolized, that we don't have words for and that we don't have memories for. And the more we symbolize it and and able to think about it and give it words, the less we have to recruit our body to do that work. A quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. If you're a regular listener, you will know I've been taking AG1, the incredible supplement, for over a year now. And it's been a bit of a game changer for me in terms of my health and energy, but it's about to get a whole lot more important. And I can't actually believe that I'm saying this. I've signed up to do Southampton Marathon in April 2023, which is a very big deal for me because I am not a runner at all. And I know that AG1 with its 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens is going to be a massive part of making sure that I can take on this huge challenge whilst also doing everything else. This podcast, my coaching business, parenting the girls, managing our lives and everything else we do as mothers. And that is because it keeps my energy so high. So whether you're taking on a physical challenge like me or you just want more energy and let's face it, who doesn't, then I highly recommend you check out AG1. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind back to the episode. So if someone's experiencing like physical symptoms, I mean, I know as mums, like whose back doesn't ache, to be honest, with all the like lifting and carrying. But I think we know the difference between like in the moment pain and that sort of more chronic ongoing and say they're spending like a fortune at the chiropractor or the osteo or whatever it is, or, or having deep tissue massages. Would you suggest then to ask themselves some questions about that pain. Where does someone begin with shifting that physical pain to make it conscious? Do you ask yourself where the pain's my body? Do you speak to the pain directly? Tell me how you do that. Much of that work is done when people themselves feel ready for it. So I think that even the instruction of always ask yourself might be too threatening. And for some people that doesn't feel right, right? They go to the doctor, they do their thing and it's fine. But I think at some point, many people feel like, all right, I want to ask myself why this is happening to me. And I think the question is always, why is it happening and why now? Right? When people come to therapy, right? One of the first thing I ask them is, why now? right? You could come to therapy a month ago, a year ago, two years ago, 10 years from now, right? Why now? And you find that there is an answer to that usually. What is the trigger now? And so I think it's the same thing that I ask about pain. I ask myself about pain and people ask themselves, why do I have that thing now? And again, you see the work is always going back to making connections, to making links. Because one of the things that happened to our mind when we experience trauma is that it shatters us and it doesn't allow us to make connections. And I think the work of healing is always a work of making connections, of thinking, thinking and making, oh, this is related to that. When we can't handle it, you will see, we do what the psychoanalyst, uh, beyond British psychoanalyst used to call attacks on linking. We just have to attack the links in order to not know. The work of healing is a work of making connections and understanding. You know, my back hurts now and it didn't hurt me a year ago, right? So maybe it's because I have a young baby and I'm, you know, and my baby's older and it's too, right? And it's too heavy for me. That's a physical answer, right? And that might be the only answer. But maybe it is also because I feel 
a lot of burden and anger that I'm the only one who takes care of this baby and I don't have enough help and I am all alone and I feel really tense and upset underneath. And that's part of my back pain. I think lots of people will resonate with that. So if someone had that realization, you know, and maybe they've written that down in their journal or they're, they're realizing it, how would they then go on to make those connections that you were talking about? I'm feeling resentful. I'm feeling angry. I think this is linked to my back pain. What would the next step be? So that's the awareness, isn't it? What would the next bit be? It really depends. It really depends on our community, our resources. I mean, and when I say resources, I don't mean only financial. Financial too. And then we have to think about how could we change it? And resource, I mean, is family. It's your partner, right? I think there is something about communicating. Oh, you know, I realized that I need help. And the help could be many things, right? The help could be psychological help, or the help could be a practical help. If I understand that I'm resentful and I have a partner that I can talk to, I can find a ways, and we can talk about that too, of how to communicate. You know, I figured that my back hurts because of emotional burden too, not only physical burden. And I think I need help. You don't go to your partner and say, you know, you're a bad husband or you're a bad wife or you're right. And, and you're, you don't help me enough. That's why I have a back pain, right? We try to really communicate our needs and where we need others to help us because our community is our resource too. And taking that one step further, because I think lots of people will resonate with that, that given what we're talking about, this emotional inheritance, could you also think, huh, I remember my mom or my dad or maybe my caregiver or someone around me, I remember them doing everything themselves too. Like, I don't remember my mom ever asking for help. Like, am I, am I repeating this? Would that be a, another important connection to start making? That's brilliant, right? Especially for mothers, because as mothers, we often think that we need to be superwomen and do everything on our own. And that's a good mother, so to speak. Again, uh, your listeners don't see me doing the quotation marks because I think that we tend to take a lot on ourselves. We tend to carry and be, of course, be resentful because it's too much. And I think you're right that it goes back generations and generations back to the feeling that women used to do all the work with children at home and did not ask for help. And, you know, in some communities, and I'm thinking about my own history and my father was born in Iran, the community helped raising a child. We need a village, as they say, right? There was something back then when my father was a child, he was raised by everybody, not only by the mother. Still, I think the mother had a very, very difficult role. And mothers are heroes, you know, but they shouldn't be superheroes. <laughs> you know, I want to make the differentiate between the two because I think there is something about changing and breaking the cycle, even for women, that we do not have to be superheroes. We really do not. And when we talk about those voices of our mothers living inside, like I hear this all the time from people in my community where they'll say, you know, I want to go back to work, for example, and have a big career, but I have this voice in my head that makes me feel so guilty about that. 
is that where we can then start to take this concept that you're talking about, that voice lives inside us and begin to unpack that? Like whose voice is that? I find that a really powerful question to ask. Like, Exactly. Exactly. I think that goes back to the generational too, because usually the voices we have in our head, of course, there is always the voice of our society and uh, right, what we consider as the right way to be a mother and what mothers are and all of that. But I think in the personal side, our parents are usually the people we have in our heads. And as mothers, we have our own mothers. Those are the voices we hear. And also we have to remember that what we do is either listen to the voices or do the opposite of what that voice says, right? And so there is that thing too. And in the Alice story, the last story in the book, I talk about that of trying to do it better than our parents and trying to do it right and repair through doing something new. And that also pushes us sometimes to want to become perfect parents, Right. I think there is something about our limitations and our limitations are, as humans, we know that, right? That the generations swing between I am like my mother or, oh no, I don't want to be like my mother. I need to do something better. And then you end up, and in the Alice story, I really talk about it, how you end up somewhere in the middle. And suddenly I think like, oh, I could be a better parent. What's the problem of being a parent? It's easy, right? I could be a better parent. And then you become a parent and you think, Actually, this is not only hard, but a lot of things that happen. I, I didn't want it to be that way. And it ended up being something different than I that I intended. And then I see my own kids, right, saying, like, what's the problem being a parent? When I'm gonna be a parent, I'm gonna do it better, right? And I think that's the cycle. And our way to break cycles, I think, is to also be realistic about our expectations of ourselves. I think that's really important, isn't it? Is that you know, I think it's a great thing to want to break some of those cycles. Like there's loads of addiction in my family and it's a great thing that I want to, you know, not perpetuate that, not repeat it. But yeah, you have to do it with a sense of humility and a sense of imperfection. I think it's so important that we, you know, we can hold those two things that both are true. And you know what else, just to add to that, is as I'm dealing today and writing new things and on those topics, I'm thinking it's also about our ability to tolerate our mistakes and not punish ourselves for them and not hate ourselves for those mistakes we make and tolerate and bear the sense of badness that we have sometimes as parents. I think it's intolerable. And, that, and those are the moments when we become really defensive and and angry because we don't want to feel that we did something wrong or that we hurt someone. Then I think the more we can bear that sense and come back and repair, the better it is even for us, for our own mental health. Tell me about repair because you said that, you know, our subconscious is constantly seeking to repair. So this is mind blowing to me that we will, without knowing it, set up the same situation. So we'll marry our dad or we will, you know, start working with someone just like our mum. that we subconsciously create these situations because there's a part of us that wants to repeat it in order to repair it. I mean, it's just mind blowing. Can you tell us about that? Maybe use the example of Eve because I thought that story was just incredible. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Because I think what you're really talking about is about our wish to repair our history and heal our parents 
you know, we all want to have healthy parents. It allows us to bloom if we have parents that are happy. And I think sometimes what make us feel stuck is that we are afraid to abandon our sad parents. So we go back and we are invested in repairing something, even in their history. And in Eve's story, her mother lost her mother when she was a child. And Eve is very, very connected to that story. She lives this. Her mother, by the way, she told her that story so many times. Speaking of processing through your kids that we talked before, right? It was not a secret. The mother told her it again and again and again because the mother did not want to be alone there and the mother needed a parental figure and she made her daughter that parental figure. She made her daughter that person that can hold and bear that devastation with her. The mother became a very absent mother for Eve. And the generational repair that we're talking about is a pretty interesting story in that specific story of Eve, because Eve's mother lost her mother when she was 14, and her mother became really sick when she was 12. And when Eve's daughter turns 12, and as an aside, I'm going to say here that dates, seasons, names, I talk about names to all of these things are held unconsciously in our mind. And something happened without her awareness when her daughter turned 12, which was the time when her grandmother got really sick and her mother started being preoccupied with her mother's death. What we learn in retrospect, and I'm, again, I'm giving you the analysis of that. There is a whole story about what happened to her. And she basically started having an affair when her daughter was 12. And again, it brings us back to the question of why now, right? Why now? And of course, with Eve, we didn't make that link right away because it's when you ask Eve, why did you think you started having the affair now? It's not the first thing that came to her mind is that her daughter is 12 and her mother started losing her mother when she was 12. Later on, we make that link that in fact, what she tried to do out of her own fear is to make sure that she is alive, that she is not going to die the way her grandmother died and in some ways the way her own mother died. And there, there is a whole story about what happened to her when she was 12. I'm not going to tell that story now. But I think what we find out, and many of the chapters talk about that, that in our wish to repair, we actually repeat. And that's what happened with Eve. The affair was her unconscious way to enliven herself. She was trying to feel fully alive, to be fully engaged. And sexuality, by the way, is a way. It could be a very destructive way when it comes to affairs, right? But we have to understand that the unconscious intention was not to destroy. It was to revive. It was to bring her back to life. And what we see that happens that instead of coming back to life and being a mother who is fully alive and fully present, she herself became an absent mother to her children. And what we really realize that she realizes in the treatment is that she repeated the history, right? And that was a really, really important realization that happens very often that when we try to repair, we actually end up repeating the painful history. It's just so incredible, isn't it? It's just so amazing that our subconscious acts out in that way. And like you said, it's almost like being detectives, isn't it? Loving detectives in our own lives. 
at the end of that story, I was thinking about Eve just then. And I thought, God, you know, I would be hit, I suspect, with a wave of shame upon that realization that I had, in fact, repeated exactly the same traumatic experience that I'd had as a child to my own children. Did Eve have that shame response? And what would you say if someone's realizing something now, maybe what you've just shared connected some dots for them? How do we not go into that shame when we realize perhaps that we've repeated the very thing we promised ourselves we perhaps never would? That's a good question, you know, because I think Eve felt shame and we all feel shame. And even I, as a therapist, feel shame, right? In a moment with Eve, I feel like, oh no, that's so shameful. And I think the weight to sit with shame, and shame is one of the hardest things to sit with, right? It really eats us from inside. And that's why I even frame it that way, because think about it when we talk about affairs, it's like, oh my God, it's such a bad thing. It's such a illicit and shameful, of course, when I'm talking about shame. Speaking of shame, having an affair, what an immoral human. And I think that my perspective is really to look at things and nobody needs me to tell them what's moral and what's not moral, right? They know there is a world outside there that can do that work for them. My job and our job as people who love other people is to understand why they do what they do and to also look for that little girl who is frightened and become a parent to that girl, right? Parent that part of us. And I think that is a way to help that part with the shame, to really be compassionate and understanding and really understand why that happened. Why did you need that? And forgive that part of us that was destructive and did maybe very, very destructive things. But the forgiveness of that part of ourselves by the other parts of us that are very much superego and feel like shame on you that voice of shame that says, shame on you. Not only are you having an affair, but also you end up repeating that. How horrible, right? And change the internal conversation to present that part with a good parent that can actually take care of that part of us that feels shame. Mm, such a beautiful place to wind the conversation down on as well that you know all of what we've talked about and it's big stuff isn't it you know family trauma and family secrets and parenting ourselves and our children and you know these are huge 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 topics I think to wind up on this point of self-compassion all just trying our best with what we have a lot of it just happens to be outside of our awareness and for that we deserve even more compassion I feel like it's just such a beautiful place beautiful place to wind to an end. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think all the mothers in the world need a big hug and need to remember that they are good and it's, you know, the good enough, the Winnicott idea of being good enough parent is the best you could do. And I want to give them a little gift that I packaged in a, you know, in a little box. And that is the research that says that every good enough parent makes mistakes 70% of the time. Do you know that research? It's Tronic and Cohen. It's in my book. It is again about repair and understanding that what is important 
is not the perfect attunement. It's not the perfect answer. It's not the perfect parenting that actually the research shows is not good for our children. We see that good enough parents do the right thing only 30% of the time. And the rest of the time, we go back and repair and come back and become more attuned and fix things that we did wrong. And I think that for me as a parent, that is a very comforting idea that it's a dance between rapture and repair. Very, very good to know. Where can someone learn more about you and your work and the book? I have a website. It's under my name, galitatlas.com. I have an Instagram account. I think it's galit underscore atlas. And the book, I think, again, wherever you are in the world, it's at this point, it's going to be published in 23 different languages. Right now, it was already published in the US and in the UK in every, I think, bookstore and, of course, on Amazon, in Italy, in Israel, in Hungary. And um, next month, in Turkey and in Germany and in Brazil. And and I think that says something about our world too, that we want to heal. We want to unpack our history. We want to unpack trauma. And I would love for people to find their own way of doing that. Mm, beautiful. Well, I think this conversation has been an incredible way to introduce people to the idea of emotional inheritance and I love the compassion that we've talked about and you've weaved through everything. So thank you so much for your time and for coming on. And I'll pop in the show notes links to everything you've talked about, including those research pieces. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here today. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. <laughs>